Well, it's a, it's a joy to be here with you this morning. Uh, why don't you open your Bibles with me, if you have them, to Mark chapter 3. It's Mark chapter 3. And of course, as, as you've seen, we've been continuing from last year's theme on evangelism, and this year specifically, it's the theme of, of being commissioned of being commissioned. And today and tomorrow, we're going to be looking at this idea of being commissioned, um, living on mission in in three ways, in three ways. And and the first way we're going to look at that is the preparation for mission. The preparation for mission. It's it's discipleship. It's being with Jesus in order to be sent by Jesus. And and so follow along with me as as we see this This morning in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 19, with me as I read. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So reads the word of the living God. You may be seated. What is authority? Power? Power over someone or something? We all have been exposed to authority at one level or another in life. And probably some names can come to mind when you think about authority. And even the definition of authority, if you look at any dictionary, the Oxford English Dictionary, it's, it's some sort of power to compel someone to do something, and if they don't do it, to punish them. It's something along those lines. And there was one professor, William Onkin, who, who sought to understand better this whole concept and this idea of authority and where it comes from. And he categorized it in four different ways, four different types or elements of authority. He looked at the authority of competence, which says that based on the level of your intelligence, what you know, how well you know it, people will respect you and look up to you as an authority because they see you as intelligent, as smart, as having knowledge. That's where we get the whole knowledge is power saying from. He also talked about the, the authority of position. That's positional authority over someone like a military commander over his subordinate officers who must submit to his authority and what he says and commands them to do. He also talked about the authority of personality. And this is being winsome. This is someone who's charismatic, someone who has such a good and engaging personality, is generous, is winsome. He gets buy-in from people. They want to follow this person and do what they say willingly. And the fourth element of authority is character. This, you can look at it as your street cred, your credit rating. 
It's your ethics, it's your morality, it's your integrity. It's these things that people see in you, in your character, that because you're like this, they see you as someone to follow and to listen. And as we're going through these four elements of authority, I bet you're probably measuring yourself to see how you measure up to them, or perhaps the, the person in your life, as you see, as being the most authoritative whether someone you don't know, a distant figure, a celebrity, or, or maybe someone you do know. But I want to tell you this morning that whoever this person in your mind, yourself or otherwise, you esteem to be the most authoritative person you know, that person pales in comparison to the authority, the matchless authority of Jesus. When you talk about Jesus' authority in these four elements, his competence, He's omniscient, all-knowing. If you look at his authority of position, he is the firstborn of all creation, the head of the church, the creator of the universe, sustainer of the world. You look at his position of personality, he was winsome, he was compassionate, he was merciful, always willing to help someone who came to him in need. And you look at his authority of character, Pure, holy, blameless, gentle, meek, humble. No, there's no one more, authority, more authoritative than Jesus in the universe. And that's part of what we're going to see here this morning. He's been building up already for those of you who are familiar with the gospel of Mark. But for the first time, we're going to see Jesus here take his matchless authority and multiply it to a select group of people, men, the 12, so that they can do the same things he's been doing as his divinely appointed apostolic messengers to preach the gospel and to prove that they're his messengers by giving them power to do miracles and to cast out demons. But before he can do that, before he will do that, before they can represent him, he must train them. He needs to disciple them. And that's what we're going to see this morning, that, that discipleship, according to Jesus, is a twofold process. It's being with Jesus, then being sent out by Jesus. You can't be sent out by Jesus if you're not spending time with him first and knowing him and his message and believing in him first. And we're going to see Mark develop this in verses 13 to 19. This morning, so we'll pick it up in verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. So just to give you a little bit of context, in the previous section, Mark has just summarized Jesus' early Galilean ministry. All the miracles, all the healings, the people are swarming him just to get a piece of him. He's healing them by the hundreds and by the thousands, and he's preaching the gospel and the unclean spirits, the demons, are terrorized of him. They're bowing down prostrate before him. And now, Mark says he, he leaves, and he goes up on a mountain. He goes up on a mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Now, I don't know if you know this, but mountains in the Bible, there is a significance Often, when you hear the, 
the idea or the theme of mountains coming up. It was at the Mount of Horeb that God called Moses through the burning bush, right, in Exodus 3. It was at Mount Sinai when God gave his law, the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments to Moses in Exodus 18. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah defeats the prophets of Baal on a mountain. And of course, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthews 5 to 7. And so right away, there's a hint here from Mark that, that something's about to happen. What's God going to do? What is Jesus going to do here? He's going up on a mountain, and mountains are often associated with times of special revelation from God. And so he goes up to a mountain. And Mark doesn't list this, but Luke, in his parallel account in chapter 6, verse 12, he says, he went up to the mountain to pray. And it says he prayed all night. He prayed all night. And I think it's instructive at this point for you and I to think about how often do you pray before taking an important decision in life? Be it where to study, what college to go to, what person to date, should I date him or her? What church fellowship to be a part of? What ministry to be involved in? What mission trip should I go on? Whom should I minister the gospel to on a daily basis? This person at school, this person at work, this person in my family? Are you also praying? Because Jesus prayed. And he is God. He had all the revelation he needed. But he did it as an example for us. And it's not like he just went in for a two or three minute short, quick prayer. It says he prayed all night. And so when you are praying, if you are, and I'm happy you are, but how fervently are you praying? How long are you praying for? Are you going to God, begging him to give you what you know you need, equipment for ministry, to be a faithful disciple, to preach the gospel knowing you don't have it, and you don't stop and you don't get up off your knees until he gives it to you? Because that's the idea here. And I know that's Jesus. None of us have that kind of stamina. God doesn't expect us to pray and stay up all night. I don't think any of us are capable of doing that. But it's nevertheless an example and a model for us to look to. And it's also important to note at this point that after he prays all night, Jesus acts. And so there's a time to seek the will and the guidance of God, and we should in prayer. And then there's a time to act, to be decisive. After spending that time, after seeking God's will and purpose and intent for your life and what decision to make, now it's time to act with a sense of urgency and decisiveness. And that's what Jesus does. He prays, and then he calls those to himself. And and notice the effectual call, the effectual power of Jesus' discipleship call, by the way. It's all about him. I don't know if you caught this in verse 13, but there's four third-person personal pronouns there, and it's him. He says, he went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. He's calling them to himself. 
That's how powerful and irresistible his discipleship call is. It's like the gospel call, the call to salvation, the saving call, the effectual call, as theologians call it, where God irresistibly draws to himself all those whom he sovereignly sets his saving love on, and you can't resist it. You come to him, and they come to him. Who comes to him? Those whom he desired. They come to him. And Jesus is not like the rabbis of his day, by the way. Uh, he chooses his disciples, as we've seen clearly in verse 13. They don't choose him. See, in that uh, Greco-Roman, ancient Near Eastern context, rabbis in Israel would walk around. They would be teaching the Torah, right? the Pentateuch, the five books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Leviticus. And they, the disciples, would walk around and be selective and decide who to follow. And they'd pick a rabbi based on whom they thought would be able to best teach them the law, the Torah. So they themselves one day could be a rabbi as well and teach the Torah. Not so with Jesus. No, Jesus specifically and precisely chooses. He's unlike any ordinary rabbi of his day. He's unique. Because he's not calling them to get to know the Torah. He's not calling them for an ulterior good. He is the ulterior good. He's not calling people to obey the Torah. He's calling people to himself because he is greater than the Torah. He is greater than the law. He's the final message from God. And so he calls them to himself. He calls them to himself. And so in so doing here, this contrast between disciples, him calling, him choosing, not them choosing him as a rabbi, it's not about what they can be on their own, but it's what Jesus can make of them after he calls them to himself. Look at verses 14 to 15. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. There's some that he called to himself, those whom he desired, and at this point, he, he narrows his selection down even further. There's a larger group of people following him at this point in his Galilean ministry. Tens, hundreds, and he specifically appoints only 12. He calls 12. And what's interesting, you can't see this in the English, but in the original, the word is not appoint, like Luke and Matthew record, it's make. He says I, he makes 12. He creates 12. What is that about? That's like Genesis 1 language. And that's the whole point of what Mark's hinting at here. He's creating a new covenant community to himself and for himself. He's making them. He's making them apostles, which just means messengers or sent ones. Why 12? If you know, there's 12 tribes of Israel. And if you know the Old Testament, you know that God called Israel to be a light to the nations. He called them to reflect what it means to be a selected, an elect group of people taken out of the world who worship the one and true holy God, who are set apart. And as an example, they're supposed to be a light and people are supposed to say, wow, your life, your God, your way of worship, I want that. 
Instead, they failed. Time and time again, didn't they? Horrendous idolatry, turning to other gods, breaking their, command, their covenant with God again and again and again. Apostasy, idolatry. And so now we, we see a shadow here with Jesus when he appoints the 12. It's figurative of, of the new covenant people and covenant community that he's forming. 12 apostles, 12 sent ones to match the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a reconstituted, restored remnant of Israel, representative of Israel. And he calls them to himself, to be with him. Did you notice that? So they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. That is discipleship, by the way. It's being with Jesus. I don't know if you thought about it that way. But it's a who before it's a what. It's, it's knowing him, being with him, and knowing who you are in relationship to him before you're sent out by him to do the what? The preaching of the gospel in his name. It's about knowing him. And you need to know him first. There's no other way around it. You see, discipleship is a, is a being before a being sent. Do you get that? It's who you are in Christ. You have to know him and the gospel and believe in it and be transformed by it and then you're being sent out by him. In fact, the, the 12 here, they spend three years with Jesus in his ministry, don't they? Watching him, listening to him, following him, asking him questions every single day, seeing how he acts and reacts in every single situation, engaging and encountering people. They watch how he prays, how he walks, how he talks, how he conducts himself. His faith in God. They see it all. And some of you are saying, well, how can I follow Jesus today like the 12? That's, that kind of discipleship is impossible. Jesus isn't around today walking on earth like the 12. They're very privileged. Really. What do you call this in your hand if not Jesus Christ inscripturated. The word about him, the word explaining him, and calling Christians and people everywhere to the life of discipleship living after him. You have this in your hands. That's actually one better than the disciples, I would say. They only had Jesus for three years. And they only had the Old Testament scriptures where, yes, he would spend time with them, teaching them and showing himself and all the prophecies concerning Messiah in the Old Testament. But they didn't have the New Testament like we do. We have Jesus all over the pages of scripture to carry around with you wherever you go, in your hand, in your backpack, on your computer, in your phones. No, the call to discipleship is just as strong and the opportunity for it is even greater today than it was for them. Especially in this part of the world, we can read the scriptures freely without any persecution. We have it abundantly 
And how many translations in the English language? That's how you get to know Jesus. By studying him in the Gospels, in the New Testament letters. And you know what else you can do? You can find a more mature disciple. Someone who you know knows Christ and lives like Christ. Probably because he knows the word about Christ better than you do. You find that person and you tell him, disciple me. You make them disciple you. You make them teach you what they know about Christ to be true. And you do the same to others. And you keep passing it on and on. That's the requirement for being sent by Jesus. You got to spend time with him first. And you got to know him and his message and believe in him deeply. If you don't have that conviction, no one else is going to believe it. If they don't see your transformed life by that message that you're preaching, no one's going to believe you. And so if you really feel that you're not ready, then by all means, don't go out too soon. Better for you to not go out at that point if you're just going to give someone the wrong message about the wrong Jesus. Like sadly, a lot of Christians are deceived by today. The Jesus who wants to make you healthy and wealthy and successful. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. Don't go preaching that Jesus. But if you know the message, if you believe in the true gospel about the true Jesus biblically, which I know many of you do, most of you do, then you're ready. You're ready. It's that simple. The gospel is all you need to be ready. It's your basic equipment. It's the shoes that you carry around with you in Romans 6 in the armor of God analogy that Paul gives, right? There's a reason why he says sandals. You don't leave the house without putting shoes on. You take it with you everywhere you go and you're ready and you're wise and you notice the opportunities in your everyday life in your circle of influence to share the gospel with someone. That's all the readiness you need. And if you still feel inadequate, oh, I don't know if I know the God, it's a simple message. It's a salvation by grace through faith alone. Jesus and him crucified. We preach Christ and him crucified, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. It's not complex. Look at the 12. If you feel inadequate, do an inventory of their failures and their lack of faith at this point in Jesus' ministry. Let me remind you. At this point, they still don't know who he is. They've seen him do hundreds of miracles. Miracle after miracle. In Peter's house, healing his mom and the hundreds who rushed in afterwards in the courtyard. Take a look at their failures. You remember Peter, the, the leader of the 12? Denied Christ three times? 
What about James and John, the sons of thunder? When people rejected Jesus' message, they said, why don't you call down fire from heaven and consume them? That's the type of thinking they had at this point. So you don't need to feel inadequate. You just need to know the gospel. You don't have to have a full-orbed, well-rounded understanding of the person and work of Christ, Christology. But you do need to know the gospel. And a child can understand the gospel. A couple months ago, uh, we were getting ready for our Christmas concert at church. And I was watching my two daughters. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old and a five-month-old at that time while my wife was on the, on the stage rehearsing with the worship team. And she runs down the aisle all the way out to the back hall. And I'm following her, and she wants to go up the steps. So she goes up the stairs all the way up to the balcony. And she wants to go in, but the door's locked. I let her try. She realizes she can't get in. She turns around, puts her hand on the railing, takes the first step, and she looks up at the window. And we have this window. We call it the salvation window. There's a cross, and there's a dove above the cross. And she looks at it, and she says, Jesus died on the cross and died for my sins. And I'm not telling you that. As a parent, a proud parent, of course, that your two-and-a-half-year-old knows the gospel. I'm telling you that as an example of how simple the message is, that even a child can repeat it, if not even understand it deeply in their heart. Which leaves you and I without excuse. It's a simple message, and he's entrusted it to ordinary, everyday people who fail, who are inadequate, like the 12, and like you, and like me. And as we look at that and see specifically the type of ordinary, lowly, insignificant, normal people that Jesus has trusted this gospel message to and called to be with him in order to be sent out by him, let's look at verses 16 to 19. It says, he appointed the 12. Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, when you look at the list of the 12, Matthew listed in Matthew chapter 10, Luke in chapter 6, and even Acts 1. And you'll notice in all of these lists of the 12, Peter's always listed first. Which we get, right? Because he's the undisputed leader of the 12. He's the spokesman of the 12. He's the brazen one who always speaks first. Bullheaded, impulsive, right? But his name was actually Simon. Why does Jesus give to him the name Peter? Petros in the Greek, the rock, the stone. And why does he give the others names? At least James and John. Some commentators would say, well, it's because he's, he's speaking to their character. 
So he calls Simon the rock because he says in Matthew 16, 18, upon Peter's great confession, you are the son of God, he says, yes, and you are Simon Peter, the rock upon whom I will build my church, speaking to Peter's character of being a rock, a rock of the faith, the foundation of the church. I am particularly ain't buying that because if you look at Peter during Jesus' ministry, he was anything but a rock. So how in the world could he have been speaking to Peter's character when Peter denied him? When Peter tried to stop him from going to the cross? When Peter demonstrated faithlessness after faithlessness after faithlessness? No. If Jesus would have named him anything, speaking to his character in that moment, what would it have been? Simon the liar. Simon impulsive. Simon coward. Simon faithless. No, I don't think it's speaking to their character. And neither is James and John, the sons of Zebedee, right, where he translates it himself. He says, the sons of thunder. That's what Boanerges means. Sons of thunder. Sons of thunder because, oh, they were, they were fiery, they had a hot temper, and they're the ones who said, Jesus, call down fire from heaven and destroy all those who reject your message. No, I don't think that could have been it. I think more than anything, those names show us something about these 12, these uniquely called and appointed 12 apostles, and specifically these three whom he gives names to, of his personal, intimate, deep affection for them. They're his inner of the inner circle of the 12, right? I mean, they're with him during extra special moments of revelation. It's only these three, Peter, James, and John, who are with him at the raising of Jairus' daughter in Mark 5. We're at Jesus' transfiguration on the mount when he reveals his heavenly glory. And Moses and Elijah are at his right and left hand. It's only Peter, James, and John. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, before the cross, it's only Peter, James, and John. So I think that's what his names, their names of affection are showing. And more than anything, we need to be reminded of this again, that Jesus uses nobodies. He chooses and uses nobodies. He didn't pick the elite of his day. He didn't pick the, the political power. He didn't put, pick even the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the intellectuals, those revered and esteemed in Jewish society. Who did he pick to be his 12? His sent ones. Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They were fishermen, blue-collar. Simon, he was a zealot, apparently, of that group who were kind of rising up militarily against the Romans, right? At the end, when we see that exchange, uh, Pilate says, who do you want? I'll release to you Barabbas instead of Jesus, and they pick Barabbas. Barabbas was a zealot. He was one who was rising up against the Romans. Simon was a zealot. Matthew was a tax collector, Levi. He was the scum of the earth in the eyes of his countrymen because he was taking their money and lining the pockets of the Romans. And what about Judas? 
one of the closest 12 people to Jesus in his life and ministry. He betrays him, sells him for a measly 30 silver pieces. Now Jesus chooses and uses nobodies. And so bringing this all together, knowing that, we need to remember that it's Jesus who has ultimate divine authority. Jesus calls. Jesus chooses. Disciples and delegates his divine gospel proclaiming authority to whom he wishes. And Jesus calls and chooses and disciples and delegates his divine gospel proclaiming authority to nobodies. And Jesus calls and chooses and disciples and sends these gospel proclaiming nobodies. And we are these called and chosen and discipled and sent gospel proclaiming nobodies. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for choosing us lowly, not the wisest, not the mighty, not the elite. We're clay pots and you've entrusted your message to us. And it's a simple message. We know it is because you've entrusted it to us, nobodies who are not the greatest minds and wise and the most capable and the powerful in the world and the influential. No, we're, we're nobodies. Yet we know in your call, with your call, comes the divine power to proclaim your message, to preach the gospel, to live on mission, to take it with us wherever we go in our lives, in our homes, in our families, in our school places, in our workplaces, everywhere. And we know we have the divine resources with your spirit in us, enabling us, giving us what to say, when to say it, especially as we seek it and seek to know it by spending time with you in your word and in prayer and with your people in your church. And we ask that you'd Energize and motivate every single person in your house this morning with a greater desire, a greater passion, a flame to preach just this simple message, this only message that has the power to transform and to save. I ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.